Hey guys, welcome to the second part of my interview with Brad Alpack. This is the George Lynch Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Legendary Gear, the game call company that is legend by design. If you like it, please uh, subscribe, like, and uh, hope you enjoy this podcast. And birds, these birds today, I think, are high quality, high definition, different bird that are, are adapting quicker. They learn because the ones that don't adapt do die. And um, just like like the old fairy, I mean. Back to back pheasant hunting. My dad would say, you know, uh, we'd pull up, cut the lab loose, and at the end of the 40-acre field, right at daybreak, the pheasants would be taken off. And I went, Dad, why? We, we, we didn't even step in there. And we uh, you told me not to slam the car door. And, he, you know, we'd walk through the field, and a couple of them would jump up. We'd kill our four birds. And he'd look at me and goes, son, we, we're genetically changing the pheasant in Michigan. Absolutely. I go, what do you mean? Why? He goes, the smart ones, one, they fly. The, the others shit. The runners get to reproduce. The ones that shit die. They don't get to reproduce. 100%. 100%, dude. Your dad was 100% on. Because um, like I said, when I grew up, we didn't have the geese, you know, our geese migrated. We didn't have the local fox, you know, people up in Allegan and stuff like that where they had the, the refuge, you know, they'd see geese in the fall. So small, I was grew up on, on rabbits and squirrels and, and a lot of pheasant. My dad always had good uh, bird dogs for pheasant hunting. Now, getting back to what your dad's talking about, genetically, uh, we're, we're genetically uh, creating a different bird. I, I agree with that 100%. And like I said, in the day, we, we'd hunt, we had great dogs. And our presentation would be the same. Well, after a while, you start seeing roosters, you know, flying up at the end of that field. And, of course, guys, they, they put standards, and that was their way of doing it. But we, my dad, would always break up our presentation, how we worked that field, and come in that field different ways and stuff. And your dad met him one time, but I had a guy named Roger Rothar, who was a yeah. to, deer hunter. Deer hunter, Roger. And your dad got to meet him at my place one year. Uh, he came over. and. um Roger told me a story, and uh, I, of course, he everything he said. I was, you know, I, he was my alter ego, man. I looked up on him and taught me everything I know really on deer hunting. But uh, Roger was talking about in, the, in Ohio was a back years ago. He used to, it was a sport to him to hunt woodchucks with his bow, with his recurve, and that's how he said I became proficient as a big game hunter with learning to kill woodchucks with a bow. He says you can kill woodchucks with a bow. You can kill any game in North American continent. But he said he was telling about this one railroad track. Every time he'd get off of work, he'd work walk that railroad track. And first couple times, he just killed the woodchucks. Third and fourth time, he said he didn't see a woodchuck. And one day, not by thought, but by chance, he came in from a different direction on those woodchucks and just killed them again because he, he changed up his presentation. You know, they got to adapt is what he's trying to say. If a woodchuck, you know, a little furry uh, critter like that can adapt to a hunting pressure how much more can you know a canada goose a, a duck and 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 a white-tailed deer you know and even the coyotes you know i'll get into the story on that a little bit later but you're right the adaptivity so let me get with you because again i was talking about i think that you have different tools and for me i'm not an everyday using silhouettes i'm not every day if i'm going to use the full bodies Again, it dictates the pressure and how birds are reacting, and I'll, I'll change to that. Today, there seems to be a big draw, and maybe because of the notoriety or the, the marking of it has been brilliant, 
but silhouettes, I mean, these kids are, everybody's using silhouettes now and, instead of the full bodies. And probably a lot of it too is the ease of use to, a lot easier to haul a bunch of silhouettes out and then full bodies. And I mean, do you use silhouettes? Are they part of your, when you're hunting, part of your spread? I have them for the what if. I, I usually don't run silhouettes every single day. I, I love my full bodies. Um, we're hunting geese that come a mile high, and uh, you know they come down on top of them like elevators usually. But um, I still have, like I said, fifty, seventy-five dozen. Um, they're in the in the shed. But if we get three inches of rain here. We can't drag these trucks and trailers out across these fields, you know, across the wheat field, across the cornfield. So we, you know, got a side by side and we can pack them in, and, you know, still hunt that day. You know, what if we, I've seen it here where we've had snowstorms in Oklahoma and the wind blew 50 miles per hour and it was a light powdery and uh, drifts were as tall as stop signs, believe it or not. Um, we had a grab armful of silhouettes. Throw open your Rogers Goosebuster or your, or your layout blind. Grab the boot bag. Do the do the march. Eighth of a mile out and knee deep snow. We couldn't get out there and, you know, and like I said, we're hunting large amounts of birds. You can't kill them with four dozen decoys anymore. Well, you said that. Pressure. Yeah, exactly. Well, again, then what you're saying, it's a tool for you. It's not your everyday thing. It's a what if. I like that. I like that. I like that what if, what if this scenario is this, and it, it, it's a tool that you're going to use in this certain situation, and it's like all of us. I mean, we're not going to drive trucks and trailers in a farmer's field if, with, if they're full of mud and, and stuff like that, and and it's the tool, so the silhouettes are a tool I can use that I can still get on a quad and, and still get my spreads out there and still obtain a big spread. That is a tool. It's not in your thought process that this is the only thing I'm going to use all year. Um, I'm like you. I've I sit back and study and watch, and, and I see a difference. And even here where I'm at in Iowa, this time of year, usually at Christmas and, and past the first of the year, um, if the weather's right, we'll get a lot of geese, the Canada geese that come through, and, and they'll hold up here a few days. Um, you would think, and luckily where I'm at here, it's basically me that suffers the late season and it goes after. These guys will go do anything to hunt ducks, but Canada geese, unless it's the young kids, the older guys down here, they're not going to go out and sit in a cold field for a goose. Me, absolutely. And uh, I found I'm sitting. I'm sitting down here. It's probably four years ago at Christmas time, and we we had fields of you know five six thousand of big honkers that was just come. And I live right on the refuge, so these geese got to come off the water, and I can sit on my deck and see the refuge, and the birds fly right over. They pile in behind me, so when they're going up to fly where they're heading, they got to go right over me, and. Uh, so I'd go, oh, they're in this field right here, and they're, they're all over out there. So I'd go up and I'd set a spread, and, and I'm using some Alp Zero gravity blinds, and you're laid down in, and I put snow on top of the blind, and you're, the height is great. And those birds will come up, and then, and then when they come up, I'll see, I'll see them coming and heading out. We're on the first field north of us. Those birds will sit here and just act like they don't, they're not even breaking wing beat. You'll try calling super hard. I, I, you're saying, man, I got to be able to pull a single here. And they're not being hunted, but they will sit there and it's like snow geese. You're trying your best trying to get that first group at least to come because when they start coming in these groups, 
they'll just start following the leader. But they were in this field yesterday, and the only thing different is all these full bodies that I just put here. And I've tried no calling. That was even worse. I've tried, um, you know, the flagging. And what I found that made the difference wasn't the amount of decoys. Um, it was the decoys I was using and my calling and my calling style. So what I started doing is I went to no other but uh, sleepers, feeders, and a few uprights, a few centuries. That was it. Everything else was head down. And then I started being able to pull, but, but my calling, um, I wasn't using my short, hard, fast call. I was basically taking my older calls or my flute call, and I was spit moaning. And those that pull off, I just hiccup and then just shut up and let them come and, and get the quietness. It just, they didn't want to hear a lot of noise. It had to be a certain thing. They had to have, you had to have the I dotted, the T crossed, and then I was pulling birds in. And I didn't have any guys that they were just conditioned that before they got to me. And that you got to be able to see that, especially in Oklahoma, because you're not, they're not the first guy, you're not the first guy they see. You know, you're getting, you're, they're at the end of the stop when they're coming to you. So, oh, yeah. So I imagine that with you, I mean, you, you're constantly to be successful as you are. And with that group of guys, number one, you got it down with a hide. But do you see that you're calling, it, it, does it have to change later in the season or anything like that? You know, some days they, they just want the fast clocks. And then other days you got to just blow your guts out all the way to the ground. I mean, it's. They and if you stop or catch a breath, George. I mean, they're they're coming, they're coming. And you stop, or catch a breath, they're gone, and you you won't get them back. And that's probably that, that one hesitation. And that's probably the different geese that you're seeing a lot of the lessers, and, and where I'm seeing oh, more yeah, giants. We're, you know? we're little goose hunters. Yeah. Even the the white birds are little white rosses. Yeah, I noticed that even in Michigan, um, hunting giants and hunting lessers. Two different calling styles. Oh, you know, we, night and day. Yeah. If we tried to call hard on those big ones like that, we'd blow them out. And so Bo and I would sit there and we we do this, that murmur and I hit that fast murmur. Or, uh, you know, you hit it and then you try to slow down and get that. Wah, 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 you do that right there. Freaking those little geese would just pick up and leave you. Like you said, you had the balls to the wall all the way. Don't lift that call to, to the, the dirt. To the yeah. dirt. I agree. Uh, that's a great tip too. It's just the the different type of goose you're hunting, the different area. Even in my area, we're hunting you know the same area, but it was a different type of goose that you're getting in there. Did you uh, do you get a lot of specs where you're at? Yeah, we, we call them giggle chickens. Yeah, <laughs> the, little chickens. Yeah, we we got them here. We started getting them in the bunches, and I wasn't from Michigan used to hunting specs. You know, yeah. I saw a few of Monroe there. I was doing a video of, of years ago, my first one, and I was back at the hunt club, and, and we were doing doing some uh, filming of how setups and how to call birds. And I, my first two specs I ever seen, I didn't even have a spec call. I was just, but I was trying to giggle on a goose call, and they circled, circled, and came right in. Dude, I thought I won the lottery at two speckle bellies, the first ones I've ever seen in Michigan. But down here, um, three years ago, I saw more speckle bellies than I did Canada's. Um, and at that time I was really using the silhouettes trying to, uh, I don't know, you know, get, 
do my study. I guess we do, I'm always studying, you know, to see the power I could do with silhouettes over the full bodies. And I was using the silhouettes. I first I had little spreads. I went to big spreads, the speckle bellies, and and we had a few of the big the big kind, but we had a lot of they called the little chickens. And they would come up, man, and 200, 250 in a group, more than that. And they'd come all that off this lake, and they'd head over to us. The first groups would would want to look like they were going to work on you, but then they had all these other geese. And I wouldn't call the shot. But it seems when they got a point, because they were coming high, when they got to a point off those silhouettes, I would lose them. And they would just keep going. And that's, you know... I don't know if because they, they they flew higher, you know, and the silhouette wasn't as you know didn't stick out like a full body, and it wasn't enough to to draw them in. Um, to me, you know, calling was had nothing to do because when you got three, four, five hundred speckle bellies over you, and they're just so friggin' loud that uh, you know I think your decoys have to be do some of the work. But I w- I couldn't consistently get them with silhouettes to want to come down. You know, I could have shot some. But, you know, when you had that many birds in the air, I wanted birds on the ground trying to, to get them in. Have them do the show. Make, make it look pretty. You know, yeah, I'm I mean, Do you think that's what it was? That the, 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 you know, I've always said this before. I think that with silhouettes, that there's a different level of bird. The low flyers that come here, early season birds, they work really good. I find, you know, later in the season when you're getting these high flyers and stuff like that you get, do you think that can be a hindrance? On the higher, I'm sure it could be, you know, but I mean, on uh, windier days, or you remember the hunting in the snow and they're on the deck, you know, if, if it's snowing, I definitely want silhouettes. Yeah. Or, you know, it's just like the old days of hunting Michigan. You, it's that heavy, wet snow, and then you, a goose doesn't have snow on his back out in no. the field. Right. And, you know, so then you got to go out there and you grab the Dump, dump, and dust it off, and then your gloves got wet. And, <laughs> you know, the good old days. Those are good old days, yeah. Have yeah. whisk broom out there. You're whisk brooming a bunch of shit, stuff, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, but, I mean, the silhouettes, I mean, with that weather, they're going to fly lower, you know. Right. And like I, like I said, they're in the shed if I need them. There you go. But it's, it's cool. 65 degrees here, George. Isn't that something? Do you think... Uh, <laughs> Everybody here, I know that the drought, we've been um, two years, last year was a, a real bad drought here, and this year, all the old farmers that I know told me that this is the worst drought they've ever encountered here, and I knew that it was going to affect our ducks, because, um, you know, we, we have this refuge here, but guys can still hunt the lake, uh, just, there's a buoy that separates you, so any bird that comes high or comes flying, you got your guys are still busting at them when they're trying to come in. Um, so it doesn't really give them a whole lot of protection and, and feeling safe. But um, so a lot of our ducks would break off, and we had so much because of the cattle and 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 the livestock and agriculture on here. We have a lot of uh, fairly good sized ponds that held water. And a lot of these areas, especially if you get a pond around here that's surrounded by corn, man, I'll tell you, when the ducks are here, those every one of those ponds you'll drive the roads are full of ducks, especially if there's corn on, you know, if there's beans, not not much. But if you get corn, it, it's it's a killer hole. This I, year, I don't, our ponds are dried up. I don't know where my ducks are. We have geese here. And uh, I got 15 acres flooded Japanese millet. They killed two 
a hen pintail and a hen mallard off of it this morning. All my buddies here that hunt, uh, you know, said, guys, we're not hunting. I said, we went out and saw, you know, a handful of ducks this morning driving around. And then we saw a few oh, geese, and geese, so we don't have a whole lot of geese here yet. Or when we did it, you know, a month ago, and they left quick. Uh, we got a few geese that's coming here. When we had those north winds last week and the temperature dropped, we got some geese in. I saw a little bit of, of ducks that came in. They were gone quick. Um but everybody here is just they're saying the same thing that they're just they're not even duck hunting them. You know, next week at the end of our ducks, so we're at the end. So you know, if you can't hunt them now, we're not going to hunt them if if weather gets colder. But I don't know if the ducks are down or do you think it's you know weather? Are they still warm up north? It has to be. You know, they're they're still up north, and here it is, almost Christmas. We're right down to what forty five days. George, I mean, we end on the last Sunday of January. Wow. Well, thank God you got the geese then, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I got to go chase them here about 3 o'clock, make sure, you know, they're, they're still around. But, I mean, they're still here. They're still good numbers. But I, I, last year at this time, George, that 15-acre jack millet, we had to go – after the hunt, run those ducks out. Uh, four o'clock in the afternoon, go run their ducks out. Uh, Fifteen minutes after shooting hours was over, go out there, shine the headlight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo, go, go. Because I didn't want them sitting in there to feed that out. Because I mean, in my history with Japanese millet, and you have seven to ten thousand ducks sitting on it, you get about fifteen to twenty days, and they'll mm -hmm. eat it out. And it's gone. Uh, but, I mean, like in the middle of the day, George, I'd pull up, drop the hot fence, drive on out there, honk the horn, just to go, go. And they wouldn't even, and, so I, and then it, it got so bad, I'd take out my shotgun, and I'd put in three shells, and I'd, you know, in, into the dark, boom, and they'd lift. And then as soon as they start to sit down, boom, boom, and then three hours later, they'd be right back in it, George. Same thing, same crop, full of water. <laughs> last year, ten, last year, seven to ten thousand. I mean, just every two, three days, George, you just beat them. And now there's nothing. And bird. Man, That's but, a little you know, you know how smart I am. You spend all the money on one. You had a great time, George. So let's. Let's get some bulldozers. Let's lease more land and build four or five of them. <laughs> and none of them have ducks. <laughs> it was, and you just mentioned that. We, we had a conversation back uh, a few months back. And you, were, you were working on that stuff. And why don't you tell the viewers the, all the work it takes to create a, a water hole? We had the worst luck. Uh, we had seven inches, eight inches of rain. In the first part of July. And then, uh, are you there? Yep. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. We had seven, eight inches of rain in three days. And it's all that lowland farming. So then we had to go buy a Yamaha four inch uh, trash pump. And that was $3,000. And then you had to get the hose because you can't just take like 8 million gallons of water and throw it over a fence and flood your neighbor's Bermuda field 
for his, you know, you, you, you had to run it to the river, half mile. So then he had to buy $5,000 worth of four-inch slate flat. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, George. Nice and then he it to the creek. And then every two hours, you, you had to put gas in it. And everybody's like, well, get a 55-gallon drum or get a bigger tank. Well, no, because you'd have to move that pipe out and, you know, make sure that it didn't catch on fire and this and that. I mean, we would run that pump for 46 hours straight. And then we'd I'd have to go back to work. And then race back down out here and, just, I mean, hook it up, fire it up. It, it got to the point I'd just leave it out in the field. And we did that and pumped that water down. And then a four-inch pump, you could only get four and a half inches of water. You, I mean, you know, then it'd run dry. And I wasn't about to spend all that. So then we went around and planted it. But in the middle, it was a little bit too wet. And then let that dry up and then, uh, you know, ripped it up with big tractor. Seed, I think uh, $2,000 worth of Jack Millet seed. I got a pallet of it. And then uh, pray for rain. But not too much. But, um, you know, we got some uh, center pivots, irrigations. But, you know, we... And we we have beautiful crops, no and uh, no ducks, and the thousands of dollars. People, that's what people don't realize. They think that while wow, these outfitters are making and the hundreds of hours. Yeah, the labor you can't even count the labor. Wow, all to shoot a duck. Hmm. Hopefully, Man. we get them. Yeah. Like I said, we still got forty five days. Water's in there. You know, we, we then you had to fight the wild hogs off of it, hmm. and then every blackbird. But if you flood it, then they can't get to it. So that, that's why we, we've got a we got a majority of them all on right now flooded. Wow. Huh. But George, I had it all planned out, man. It, it looks so good on paper. Hey, I'm gonna put this Thanksgiving. We're gonna shoot that in about 15 days. And about day 10, I'm going to go over here and flood that, get that water up. So, man, we just keep on going. Nothing. Now it's like, all right, either it's going to sit or we can fill it up and hopefully get get 20 days out of something. I mean, you know a lot of people, but any of your contacts up in the north there, any of them telling you that, hey, we're still waiting on ducks, we're not seeing ducks, or do you know people that have ducks? I talked to Jaron Landers, and he's at Habitat, and yeah. uh, I talked to you know him the other day, and, he, and I said, are you killing them? He said, we're killing them, but we're not killing the good ones. I was like, where are they? He goes, man, they're still north of us. Hmm. And, you know, our friends on Facebook, Russell's fellow on Facebook, December 8th, he was mowing and mulching his yard with green. <laughs> December 8th in Michigan Isn't that crazy? Man, uh, Farmer's Almanac said that this is going to be a cold, wet year and uh, George I, I just had my side-by-side track with, you know, to get through with all the wet and the snow and I'm starting to scratch my head. I don't know if we're going to get it. Yeah, we, we haven't gotten the weather here either but like I said, the droughts killed us you know, we had a pond dug 
it was two years ago with the guy Doug the DNR helped us put in this pond. It was working as a filtrating system for the water going to the to the lake and everything. And it's thirty foot deep and from we got this long dike and everything and it's forty seven feet from the top of the dike. We got it set so it, it we have a, a, a floating well for the horses and it's got spigot. So my wife has thought of everything. We bulldozed all this timber around there and we planted the, the grass is all and the grass did come up and the only thing we got coming in is deer. <laughs> <laughs> the deer seem to like it, and uh, Ooh, a lot of something enjoying it. You know, yeah, something's coming in. So I, you know, I have Doug Osborne on a couple of times. I had him on again this year. I don't know if you know Doug, but Doug is the head waterfowl biologist for University of Arkansas. Really? And yeah, Doug is a sharp cat. In fact, he does a lot of work with DU and all the other people. Um, I met him a few years ago. Uh, Easton, I was at my last year out there judging the World Goose, and he was out there. They had him come in, him and a couple of kids that worked for him to judge the duck. And we became real tight, and, and judges, uh, his knowledge, uh, Doug's knowledge is just amazing. And so I, I have him on, you know, always talking. We came up, you know, one of the first things was why the migration people are seeing spec speckle bellies. Why are we seeing speckle bellies where we don't normally see them? Is the migration moving? And he talked about it's all because of the habitats changed in Texas, which is by that they're moving because of the habitat, the salt, the, the salt water and all that is disappearing. And, but we're talking about the ducks. And that was one of the things that he was talking about that they're really watching and worried about was the, the, the lack of rain in our potholes and stuff. And what is it going to do for duck production? And, and uh, you know, they're, they're not going to put the red flag up just yet. But he said they are watching a close eye. And he said the, the hard thing about this is that COVID, the, single, the big C, when it came along, we lost two years of information. That, able, yeah, that information. Yes, sir. And he said, so that really put us, so we really don't know what we're to expect, you know. So now, last year and this year, is they're, they're getting back trying to, to obtain and, and try to watch what, what's really going on with our duck population. So I'm going to get him on again at the end of the year and, and try to see what they found and what, what they think is going on and, and, and everything. So I think it'll be interesting to see what they have to say. The, the, the kids that work for him, man, they're, they're freaking awesome. We were... We went to some refuge was outside there, and, and I rode with him and two of the young kids who had worked for him, who are now got great positions. One works for uh, Ducks Unlimited. Uh, the other guy does uh, works at the, what's the plantation? Oak Oak Plantation that they have down what, there. Is it White Oak? Something like White that? Oak Plant, yeah, White Oak Plantation. So this guy kind of opens and gives all this to, they can do studies, and they do all the DNR stuff there. In fact, um the Wonders of Waterfowl is a program his wife has started. Uh, we last year donated, or worked, you know, did a bunch of call duck calls for the, all the kids. They had like a hundred kids that come to this thing, and what they do is they come to the oak plantation, white oak plantation. They have seminars and talking about um, duck reproduction. They go, kids get to go out there and handle ducks and talk about the anatomy of ducks. They talk about calling. You know, they do this whole thing, which is a pretty cool thing. But um, we were anyway. We were at uh, Worlds, and that morning we thought, "Hey, there was a refuge not far from there, and they, they wanted to go there and uh, check out the birds over there." Now there was some dang kingfisher, but some type of one bird that they heard. This one bird is normally in Mexico or South America has been seen in this refuge. Okay, like a little parakeet thing looking thing, and I'm like. Okay, one bird. You guys are all pumped, wanting to go to this huge refuge to find this one bird. 
And, you know, it was so funny because we're driving through, and I'm like every typical other guy. Like they said, I go, oh, an eagle, an eagle. And they're going, oh, look, he gets oversighted, and we're an eagle. And this young kid picks out and spots this little bird, this rare bird, over on the other side of the bank into this brush, in the, in the brush, sitting in a brush, you know, across this, this, this channel, this dike. And I'm looking again, and I'm like, how in the heck did you spot that thing? It's just their condition, how they studied, you know, that was their life. And I thought that was really cool that we got guys that are, we do have some good guys that are worried about our ducks and, you know, with that type of talent that are watching and and hoping that we have a future, try to keep that future going with our, with the ducks. And so, yeah, they're, they're a special, special group. And uh, they love to hunt. They're not one of those biologists or the guys that go out there and they're just uh, uh, pencil heads, you know, pencil necks. These guys love to hunt. I mean, they they do it because their love for hunting. So it'll be interesting to see what he has to say at the end of the year here about uh, what's going on with the ducks. I know a lot of guys here are shaking their heads and and everybody says the same thing that they you know they're they're still north. I know we were up in Saskatchewan the first week of September. I've got a real good friend up there who it's an hour and a half north of Yorkton. And we find the best way to get there is five from Des Moines to uh, Minot, North Dakota. And then we rent a car and just drive five hours from there up to up there in Saskatchewan. But what a beautiful place. He's got a home. He had an elk hanging in the cooler for us to eat. We ate elk. First time Diane had elk. That's, she said she'd never eat deer again over elk. Elk was amazing. But they had elk, they had mule deer, whitetail, and black bear all right there in the same spot. We were lucky. We knew we were getting there early. Luckily, they had started harvesting a week before the fields. So we started getting geese in. And um, our first mornings, we said, you know, the guys, we knew we primarily we were after the geese. And we wanted to film. We were doing the Bushnell's primary pursuit. That was too good. It was a show up there, invited us to come up. So, you know are we going to shoot ducks? And I, I kind of told them, I said, really, they're not really mature yet. It's going to be hard for me. I mean, if I'm going to do a duck shoot and you want to put it and film it, if it was just a buddy hunt, it's one thing, but if you're going to film ducks, you kind of want to see nice fat green heads coming in, putting the green down, everybody holding green. And we were, we were flat in that morning. You could take your hat and hit the ducks that were coming in. I couldn't tell you a Drake if, if I saw one, you know, they were just that immature, but we, I think we shot 150 honkers in the three mornings the big honkers, but, um, and that was a good hunt and they had water up there and everything, but, um, they still got, you know, I don't know what they got for birds up there now or anything. They might be too far North. I don't know. I don't know if they're just North of Dakotas or where they're at, but. I'm not quite sure. I, I did, you know, you hear all these reports that the Dakotas are froze out in this, but I mean, they need snow cover, George. We yeah. got to, even though it freezes, they're going to just hit rivers. Yeah, there are uh, bubblers and ponds, you know, and hell, you you've seen it in Michigan where Devil's Lake, the four or five, you know, or two thousand birds will keep a hole open. Yeah, yeah, I always said that you got to have the birds keep the water open. You know yeah. what? Before we go here, Brad, I I got to tell a great. This is always my favorite Brad Albeck story, and I got to tell this story because it it just it tells uh, your reputation. Um, who you are, um, you just, I'll never forget. There was a farm in, in Onstead that, that, that Dave Patterson was trying to get. And it was a farm that you had hunted. You knew this farmer really well. 
and he's always taking care of you, took care of him. And, uh, but Dave Patterson wanted to move in and get that farm. And he thought, well, I'm going to go in, like you talked about money. I'm going to take money and I'm going to get this guy away from Brad Albeck. And, um, which hurts the business. That's where you said, you know, it starts, you know, this money deal starts really hurting. But anyway, he went in there and Dave thought he had it locked up. And Brad Albeck catches wind of this. I think the farmer even told you that, hey, I got this other guy. So Brad Albeck finds, and you have to know the history of Brad and his famous uncles. You know, he's had some famous uncles. One was a coach of the Atlanta, uh, or um, Atlanta, is it Hawks? Atlanta Hawks. Atlanta Hawks. NBA yeah. coach. Stan Albeck. Yeah. One was an NBA coach. The other one owned the Cowboy um, bars and, and, and stuff like that all across in the country. The big country music stars went and sang and stuff like that. So you had two. Then you had George, your dad, you know, who was, all three were had talent in their own realm. You know, they were all successful. And uh, anyway, Brad finds out that uh, the farmer's wife was a huge Toby Keith fan. And Toby Keith was coming in a concert there. So Brad says, you know what, well, how about, you know, you can, you can release this stuff, but how would, how, what would happen if I got your wife to meet Toby Keith? And of course, I'm sure he probably thought this guy's, you know, this kid's been smoking one before he came to the car or came to the farm here. And uh, you ended up with tickets. This is a story I get from the farm. You ended up with tickets to the Toby Keith concert. You take him to the concert. But better than that, you take him backstage. And he says, man, he says, Toby Keith is back there signing autographs. He's got his head down. And Brad Albeck just walks in like he knew everybody in the building, just walks right in there and goes, GK! He says, Toby Keith just looks up and goes, all back. <laughs> right, then, right then, we knew Brad was hunting the farm. That was my, I still can hear that today. Old Toby Keith raises his head going, all back. Oh, I can tell you some stories. And, uh, man, Toby's not doing too well health-wise. And uh, him and my uh, Uncle Stevie. Yep. Uh, my dad's younger brother he used to run around and he um, started out his career as like the house band for Uncle Stevie, you know, and kind of got him you know, to the right people. And I mean, they, and Toby always loved sports. So Stevie would call Stanley and, you know, we'd get tickets to the you know final four or this NBA game and get to meet that. And it was good little networking. Man, that was a great story, though. But Brad Albeck with Toby Keith, and anyway, I always he called my truck one night. He uh, was in between shows, and he stopped in the club in Atlanta, and he had his big tour bus. And uh, I think uh, Sammy Kershaw was singing, and Lori Morgan was there, and you know, just in the crowd. And he looked at me, he goes, "Albeck, I'm dying for some steak and shake." But I don't want to take this big tour bus. And I said, Toby, I said, I gave him my keys. I said, listen, you're doing all these four commercials, all this. This is my truck, not Uncle Steve's truck. You wrecked my truck, Toby. You buy me a brand new one. <laughs> I gave the keys. <laughs> and he's like, right, I'll see you later. And, uh, and uh, I got to go say goodbye to Floyd Morgan. But, he, he, you know, he didn't say it too happy. Oh man, that's a great story. And it, yeah, but he again, actually that's, that's took Brad my green G seventy one to Steak and Shake. <laughs> he said I'm starving. <laughs> well, 
Well, Brad, I appreciate you, buddy. Um, and hopefully, hey, George, you look good. And I hope to see you in Oklahoma, man. And uh, man, those duck calls I got from you and goose calls are working. Um, I knew I, I was. I sent that, and I said, "This is, I think, Brad's style. I've known you long enough." Yeah, small geese. I said, "This is, I think, uh, will work well for you." And and uh, I was proud. You know, we we went through a rough time when we sold to a, a big corporation out in New York, and like everybody else, you know, little guy kind of is at the bottom of the pole. But you know, we started another company just this time. My wife and I, and I redesigned everything, and and you know, then we started a company with COVID coming out, but. Uh, I was truly blessed because our first year, you know, with Lynch Mob, we did things and definitely we had more people and we did more things. But this is we're, we're growing. We're making a great base. But um, the cool thing is our first year uh, in Wildfowl Magazine, Skip Knowles, the editor there, and, and our nosedive duck call was the top pick for 2022. And then in the goose call division, our old man made top pick. So I said, not bad for an old redneck kid. It came from Michigan. So. You know, we're not we're too bad working. for an old deer hunter. Uh, for an old deer hunter, that's right. <laughs> and I've seen some, hey, and we're still killing the big deer out here. So, but anyway, buddy, I, I, Diane and I are planning and coming down there this month to, yeah. to see it and try to get a couple days in hunting with you and try maybe even bring a camera guy with us if, 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 if you, you don't have a problem with that. And I don't have any problems. I look forward to seeing you. You've been a friend for a long time. And, you know, my kids, guys, I just want to tell you a story. My kids, it was one of the big thrills for my kids because we kind of lived outside of town. But was, we'd go into the, to the, 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 the city and the, the suburb there in, in Adrian, not far from Adrian College. But one of the treats for my kids, they get all dressed up in their Halloween costumes. Every year. Trick or every treat. year to go see your mom and dad. And they would oh. make over them like they were their kids. And they get all this candy and stuff, and your dad was so great with kids. Oh, my gosh. He was so great with my kids, and that is, is a memory that I will remember, and my kids remember for a lifetime now, going to Allbacks for, for Halloween. So I appreciate you taking a busy, uh, your busy schedule, taking some time to talk. He's 89, and he's still mad at every single deer or every single duck or goose that flies. That'd be awesome. He just... I mean, I try to get him a good buck this year, because like he says, you know, and uh, one night at 20 yards, and he shoots a shotgun in the slug, you know, to a, a Greta A400 with a, you know, a, a Savage slug, just cylinder, and, you know, he can hit a, a softball at 50 yards, we only shoot at 20 yards, and he come in, and he, and he was like, you know, I had that great big six, and I go, eight points or bigger, outside the ear, Dad. Well, then I had all these dopes. I said, no does on that farm, Dad. You know I'm running out of time, don't you? <laughs> Bless his heart. That'd 89 years old, he still loves to deer hunt, duck hunt, and goose hunt. God bless him. Tell him that we said hi. And Brad, again, I thank you, folks. If you like this, please subscribe to this and check us out. And always remember... You know, Legendary Gear, go to legendarygearusa.com. Check out uh, all our calls. Go to YouTube. I think it's George. What is it, Di? George? Legendary Gear with George Lynch. Legendary Gear with George Lynch on YouTube. Check out all our YouTube. Check out this show, uh, this podcast. Oh, the boss says, let him know that if you don't know what calls good for you, call George, and he'll let you know what calls good for you. And always remember, hunt safe, hunt smart, and may the good Lord be your guide. Well, I'll be out there, rain is shining 
all a part of the great design. Bring it on, I can never get enough. Because that's what legends are made of.